Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. So like I said, I want to start with just a little bit of review. If I were to say to you, the Bible is a book about who? God. The Bible is a book about God. And one of the goals of our class is to help you increase in sound Bible study. Remember, sound Bible study transforms the heart by training the mind and puts God at the center of the story. So we want to help you increase in sound Bible study and Bible literacy. Does anybody remember what Bible literacy means? Don't be shy. Yes, good. And what are the ways that we increase in Bible literacy? We talked about three different ways in our introductory class. What's the first way that we increase? You can cheat if you need to cheat. <laughs> What's the first way that we increase in Bible literacy? No, but that's a good way. That's a good. We let the Bible speak. We let the Bible speak of God, right. What's the second way? We let the mind transform the heart. Right. The heart cannot love what the mind does not know. Good. And then what is the third way that we talked about? Good. We practice good study methods. And the rest of our class, we're just unpacking good study methods. And then last week, Denise taught us that we begin with study with a purpose. And one of the ways that we do this is we understand the storyline of the Bible. And so Denise told us that the Bible is one consistent storyline of one consistent story for one consistent purpose. Those small stories, they help tell of God, of his rule and his reign. They help us to know and love our king. So what were the four small storylines that are being told over and over and over again in the Bible. What's the first storyline? Creation. Creation. Good. What's the second one? The fall. fall. Third? Redemption and rescue. And And then what's the fourth one? Restoration. Restoration. So when you had opportunity this week to think about those four storylines, I think that was one of the questions that we gave you. Did anybody come up with places in the Bible where you see that theme of creation or recreation being told? Did you think through specific places in scripture or a passage? Good, good. Any others? Yes, yes, absolutely. I was thinking even of the book of Judges. You know, there's the cycle of everything is good, they fall, like it keeps being told over and over. What about the fall? Where do, you, where do we see that theme of the fall? We obviously see it in Genesis 3, but where else? You see that anywhere in Scripture? You see it throughout the Old, Old Testament because... Absolutely, absolutely. Um, how about redemption or rescue? 
Where do we see that in God's word? All over. All over. Exodus, Ruth, the woman at the well. Good. Yeah. Good examples. I even put Paul. Good. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Good. Um, and how about restoration? The resurrection. Good. Revelation. Yes. Good. Good. Well, I'm glad you were able to think through that a little bit. So this week we are on lesson three. And lesson three is going to come from Jen Wilkins' book, um, chapters four and five. And so just a reminder, I'm using all of her materials, all of her information, using her words, so that when this is on our website, everybody knows we're just taking and teaching her materials. So I want to ask you this morning, have you ever stopped to consider how important context is in having the right perspective? So if I were to tell you the other night, my husband and I, we got dressed up um, to go celebrate my birthday. But the evening ended with me being shouted at and in tears. You would probably draw some conclusions maybe about what happened and how our evening went. But if I put it in the proper con context, maybe if I told you my husband and I got dressed up to go celebrate my birthday and he took me to a birthday party where friends jumped out from hiding and they shouted surprise and I was so overwhelmed with joy at seeing so many of my friends and relatives all in one place that tears sprang to my eyes. You would probably have a very different perspective. But I just want to add this side note. If anybody ever invites you to a surprise party for me, please tell me because they will not be overwhelmed with joy. So. Well, I'm not sure I understand. Well, I understand there, Siri. Okay. So in life, we really do understand how important context is. If you've ever been around children, I mean, children, a child will come to you and say, so-and-so hit me. And what's the first thing you do? You, you don't just go and reprimand the other child. You try to find out, okay, what was happening in this situation? What did you say? What did you do? So we understand that context really is important. And as we study God's word, we need to give weight and attention to the context of a particular scripture or passage in order for us to have the right understanding. And so last week, Denise taught us, she taught us that the whole Bible, it tells one big sweeping story about God. It tells one big sweeping story about God. Um, that's your first point in your notes. The story of creation, the fall, redemption, and restoration. The Bible tells us about God's rule and God's reign. But within the 66 books of the Bible, there are also smaller stories, since each story, each book of the Bible tells a story of its own. The Bible is one big story, but it's also a compilation of many smaller stories. And so each book of the Bible, it reflects the character of God through a particular historical and cultural lens. And that lens is the necessary perspective that we need in order for us to understand the text that we're reading correctly. And so if we take the time, if we take the time to understand the cultural and historical perspective of a book, we're going to be better equipped to understand how to interpret it, 
how to value it, how to apply it to our lives. And so this is a fundamental step in our Bible literacy because we can't grow in our understanding the text or we can't increase in knowledge without putting on the right glasses. And so the first way that we do that is we begin with prayer. Um, that's your first blank. Will somebody read from your notes James 1.5? I mean, isn't that an amazing promise? If we lack wisdom, God promises us, we can ask him for it, and he will give it generously. God is not put out by our need for his help. And so prayer is the means by which we invite or ask the Holy Spirit to take up residence in our study time. Without prayer, our study of God's word, it is just an intellectual pursuit. It's just knowledge for the sake of knowledge. But with prayer, it's a way that we can commune with the Lord. Prayer is the part that will change your study time from a pursuit of knowledge to a pursuit of God himself. Prayer is the part that changes your study time from the pursuit of knowledge to a pursuit of God himself. And so prayer is not just a one-time thing. It's also something that we should be doing as we study God's word. It's what we should be doing all along the way. And so if you think about God's word, the Bible tells us it is exactly that. It is the way that God speaks to us. It is God's written word. And the Holy Spirit, he takes the word of God as we read it, and he applies it directly to our hearts. The Holy Spirit is the one that makes the Word of God understandable to us. God speaks to us by His Spirit through His Word. But prayer is the way that we speak to God. So when you think about your time, your pursuit of knowing God more, it's not hard to grasp that prayer would be a foundational component in that. Think about your very best relationships. All of those relationships probably have an element of give and take to them. And so as we pursue knowing God more, that should also involve us growing in our ability to pray and talk to God as well. So as you begin any kind of study, pray. And Jen Wilkin in her book, she uses the acronym PART, P-A-R-T, to model her prayer time. If you are more comfortable with ACTS, it's the components are basically the same. It's just the order is different. So she says, begin by praising God for his word. Praising God. Your time should have a time of adoration and praising God. Recognizing who God is. God's word, he has given us the revelation of who he is. Our God is a God that we can know. We can know his character and we can know his will. So praise him for who he is. Praise him that you are given a Bible in your own language. I think we, that is such a common thing to us that we don't even um, feel overwhelmed by that reality, that we have the access to the Bible in our own language. We have different translations of the Bible readily at our access. And then A, admit any insecurities or ways that you feel weak or intimidated. Admit to God, confess when it feels hard. 
Confess any sin that may interfere with your study. Maybe it's pride or impatience. Maybe you're coming to God's word and you just have a lack of desire or you feel very distracted or you have a list of other priorities. Maybe you feel frustrated in your study time or maybe you feel very apathetic. Confess any of those things to God and then make requests of him. Ask the Lord to help you. Ask him to help you to have ears to hear and eyes to see as you study his word. Pray that God would guard the time that you have, whether you have a lot of time to spend or you have just a little bit of time. Pray that God would keep you from distractions, that he would clear your mind of other concerns. Ask God to make his word come alive to you, that you would see your need for him, that you would see your sin, that you would understand him in greater ways so that your knowledge and your understanding increases. And then you want to close out that time in prayer with thanksgiving. <coughs> Thank God for the time that you've had to study. Thank him that God has revealed who he is through his word, that he has given us his word. Thank him for Jesus. Thank him for the Holy Spirit, whose job it is to make the word of God understandable to you. Thank him for whatever you can think of. And then number two, we're going to add patience. Would somebody read for me Luke 8.15 from your notes? As for receiving the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. So when my kids were little, they were gifted this kit that was essentially supposed to be like an archaeology kit. It was a big block of dirt and buried inside of it were all sorts of bones. And it came with these little tools that you had to chip away and kind of dig out the bones that were buried inside. <coughs> In the same way as you approach the Word of God, <coughs> you have to kind of be an archaeologist of sorts. You have to handle the Word of God with a degree of understanding because as Christians, we are inheriting a faith that's built on foundations that came before us. There's a song that we sing here at Faith Bible and the chorus says, ancient words ever true, changing me and changing you. The Bible, it is an old work of literature. It is ancient words, but the Bible is also a timeless book. God's word was originally written in a language that is not our own, to people whose lives looked very, very different from ours. And yet, this is amazing about the Bible. The Bible is living and active. So it speaks just as much to our lives today as it did back then. But we have to build our modern understanding of scripture with the historical and cultural context that lies beneath the surface. And so context, it is vital for having the right understanding and application to any text. And the Bible, its historical and cultural context, it's there for the digging. But only believers who have a small sense, who have a sense of their small space in redemptive history are likely to dig with diligence. In the book of Proverbs, I've listed some of those in your notes. The Bible speaks of acquiring wisdom to finding gold, and silver and other hidden treasures. All of those things require digging to obtain. 
So small letter A, patience requires a willingness to dig. And I think the problem with our study is much like the problem my kids had with that archaeology kit. They lacked patience. They lacked patience. And we lack the patience and the discipline that's required to let a natural learning take its course. The desire for instant gratification is going to always be a temptation to creep into your Bible study time. But sound Bible study, sound Bible study, it is a celebration of delayed gratification. Gaining Bible literacy is something that is going to happen over days and over weeks and over months and even years. And how one part of Scripture relates to another part of Scripture, that's something that reveals itself slowly and gracefully. The majesty of God, it's revealed one passage at a time, one day at a time, across a lifetime. And so when you come to God's word, you need to come not just ready to study for today, but to study for a lifetime. And I will tell you, this has, was, is, has been the biggest comfort to me. It's comfort to me in seasons when I was working full time. It was a comfort to me when I brought a new baby into my home um, or when my husband began traveling for work and I was just overwhelmed with caring for little ones all by myself. It has been a comfort to me in a season right now where my normal routine and my normal time with God has felt off kilter and it has not been, it has not been the same as it's been in the past. And so I think this is a total shifting of perspective. Instead of thinking of your time with God daily as a debit account, I want you to begin to think of it as a savings account that you are daily making deposits into it. Every day, in big and small ways, as you read God's word, whether you read one verse a day or you read a chapter a day, you are making deposits. And you just never know, you just never know what kind of earnings those deposits will yield or when they will yield an earning. Years ago, um, our ladies' Bible study, we covered the book of Exodus. And sandwiched into that study was a one-week study on the book of Leviticus. And that week, for the ladies in their homework, it was meant to be an overview. So as they completed the lesson, they were really just skimming the surface. I mean, it was totally just an overview. But I was given the task of preparing a lecture on all 27 chapters of Leviticus. And if you've ever read the book of Leviticus in your Bible reading plan, um, I think Leviticus is where Bible reading plans go to die. I mean, Leviticus is really, really hard. It's really, really hard. It's all about God's law. I mean, it is a listing of God's law. There are laws for offerings. There are laws for sin, for atonement, in details, in great detail. Um, the garments of the priest and his duties and his role. So Leviticus is all about God's requirement. There are a lot of sacrifices in the book of Leviticus. And I walked away from that study and preparation just really with one thought. Whoa. I mean, God's law was impossible to keep. I could never, ever keep God's law. But I also really kind of learned what the New Testament means 
by, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Because that was God's requirement. And there is so much shedding of blood in Leviticus because we're fallen and we need redemption and restoration. God's standard, that has never changed. And all of those sacrifices, all of those requirements, they really did point to a need for Jesus to die on the cross. Well, sometime after that, some time went by, I jumped into a summer Bible study on the book of Hebrews. And imagine my surprise when in chapter 1, verse 3, I read this. It said, he, speaking of Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Well, because I had studied Leviticus, I knew the high priest, he did not sit down. He was so busy making continuous offerings and sacrifices for sin. His days were filled with sacrifice upon sacrifice and offering upon offering. And so when I read that verse, I mean, I am still, I can't even tell you, I'm still so struck by that. And it's been years since I've, since I've studied this. I was so gripped by Jesus' shed blood for me in a way I had never understood, no matter how many times I had read that verse. Jesus sat down because no more sacrifice, no more shedding of blood was necessary. And I think that's why we can look and, and say, any study of God's word, any study of God's word is profitable. Nowhere in the Bible does God give us guidelines on how long we should study or what a quiet time or a meaningful time in the word should look like. Does that make you uncomfortable? Because that makes me terribly uncomfortable. I am a rule follower and I want standards and I want guidelines. <laughs> Tell me what to do. And even as Denise and I talked a lot as we were preparing to teach through this class, you know, there is no one right way to study. There is no timeline that you have to use to study. I hope more than anything, what you walk away from this class is that there is a freedom. This is a different perspective. This is a shifting of, just a, a totally shifting of a different kind of foundation to build on. There is no one right way. You don't have to do a, a chapter of a day to have a meaningful time in the Word. You are not required to read a certain number of verses a day. So number C, letter C, patience requires us to be realistic about our circumstances and our seasons. Patience requires you to be realistic about your circumstances and seasons. You may be someone that has a lot of time to devote to your study of the Word of God, or you may be somebody who has just 10 to 15 minutes a day and so, of course, if you have a longer time to devote, you're going to naturally be able to accomplish more than someone who just has a smaller amount of time. But the 10 to 15 minutes a day, I want to encourage you, that is still just as profitable. When my children were little, especially after I read this book, um, it took me years and years and years in the summer to get through studying a book of the Bible on my own. I 
teach in Our Lady's ministry. I do counseling. And so much of my time in the Word is often spent preparing to teach someone else. But when I spend time just for me, when I get to choose what I'm going to do, I now go very, very slowly. I feel no pressure to work through an entire book of the Bible by the end of the summer. When it's time for me to transition back to our regular ladies study, I just leave that book and I go back to it when my season allows. Whatever time you have is not a wasted opportunity. It is an investment. And if you are someone that just has a small amount of time to spend, I hope what you realize is that is going to increase your desire and your appreciation for times when you can spend more time in the Word. You know, my kids, um, they like hot breakfast. And so one of the things that I do is I make these burritos, these breakfast burritos so that I can roll up and freeze so that during the week they can have a hot breakfast kind of on the go. But on Saturday mornings, we stay in our pajamas. I drink coffee really slow. Um, I make crepes, right? We make pancakes. We have longer drawn out breakfasts. So if you're somebody that just kind of has a fast food breakfast in your normal life, make sure you take time, set aside time, build that into your schedule where even if it's just once a month, you have a longer stretch where you can spend more time in the word. Think about how you can do that because it will give you a, those fast foods will give you a deeper appreciation when you can spend a little bit more time. But here's my encouragement to you. I want you to begin to be comfortable playing the long game. Often what we want is we want short-term results. And so we need to be patient with ourselves. As a believer, you have a lifetime to know God and his word. You will never exhaust learning. Every single time we do a ladies' Bible study, I think, have I never studied this book of the Bible before? I mean, I think at every single time, I'm like, I'm sure I studied this. There are always new things to learn. Whatever season you're in, God's word really does speak to that area. So learning the Bible, it does take some discipline. And that's not something we naturally embrace. But also arriving at understanding, that's much, much harder than simply taking in new facts. The Bible does stretch our understanding. And so you should be expected at times that when you sit down to study God's word, at times you will be frustrated. And that is when you should be patient with the learning process without giving up. You need to avoid looking for a shortcut because if you do, you're going to miss out on the beauty of discovery. Feeling lost or feeling confused, that is not a bad sign for a Bible student. It's actually a sign that your understanding is being challenged and learning is about to take place. So I want to encourage you, give yourself permission to get lost because that feeling is actually your friend. Letter D, patience is necessary when I feel lost or frustrated or confused. <clears throat> My husband travels a lot for work. And the vast majority of time, more than any other place, um, he spends time in Greenville, South Carolina. And as I was reading um, Jen's book, I was reminded of this. When Justin travels, every time he flies into um, a new place, he asks the girls at the airport, 
where to eat, recommendations on where to eat, because I just said that eating is so important to us. We want to eat at good places. But over time, as Justin has gra uh, traveled to Greenville, he's started wandering around. He's gotten confused. He's gotten turned around. He's explored the city by renting a bike. And now Justin knows the ins and outs of Greenville. The first time he took us there, we stayed downtown near Main Street and we Googled attractions and we just went to every place that was on the list. But now when we go, he takes us to these neat little out of the way places. He takes us to markets and local attractions that tourists don't know are there. They're things that may not ever make a Google list, but they give us way more understanding and appreciation for Greenville. Because Justin has gotten lost, he knows the city in new ways. And the more he's willing to go and explore on his own, the more he discovers. And so as you give yourself permission in your study time to get lost or get confused, there may be days when you walk away from your time in God's word more confused than when you started. You may not have a neat application or truth to take with you. You really can walk away from a text still wrestling with it and not understanding what it means. And that may seem profitless, but if you keep the long-term view in mind, those days are gonna be investments. They're gonna stretch your understanding and they will be deposits that produce these wonderful aha moments down the road, much like my study of Leviticus and Hebrews. Reading a text to meet an immediate need, that is not wrong. That's a good thing. We should go to God's word for answers. But I want to give you, I want to encourage you to give yourself permission for the benefits of your study to be put away for future use. Because letter E, patience will yield fruitfulness. That verse we read back in Luke 8 was part of the first parable that Jesus told. And Jesus describes a farmer who goes out to sow seed. Now, the seed falls in various places, places where it cannot grow well. But at last, some of it falls into fertile soil where it bears this miraculous harvest. And the farmer that sows, he's just faithful to sow. He has no anxiety for his seeds. And just like that parable, as children of God, we have hearts that are fertile soil for the seed of God's word to grow. We are able to hear and receive the word of God. Be patient as you practice the discipline of sound study, because just like in other places in scripture, that principle of sowing and reaping, it ensures that in due time, you will reap a harvest from all the seeds of God's word that you lay down. Allow those seeds to grow and to germinate according to God's timing, trusting him for the harvest. You do not need to worry. This is something God never calls you to do. You do not need to worry about how much you're growing or the rate at which you are growing but you can entrust that to God. That is something that God does. What God calls you to do is to be faithful because faithful study, it will yield fruit. Growing is sometimes slow, but just because you don't see it doesn't mean it's not happening. The third point in your notes is that we need to practice exegesis. 
And exegesis is the process of excavating the original meaning of the passage. It is the process of excavating the original meaning of the passage. And exegesis pushes the boundaries of our personal understanding of cultural and history, asking us to go back in the time to the time when the text was written and hear it with the ears of the original hearers. So before you can hear it with your ears, exegesis asks you to hear it with their ears. Before you can understand it for today, you have to understand it for back then. It asks you to take on the perspective of the author and the audience in their original setting. And this will set us up with the right perspective to study and learn from any given book of the Bible, which is what we're going to be talking about next week. Now, you'll probably remember if you think back to the last three books of the Bible that Bryce has taught on Sunday mornings to our congregation. In each of those cases, when he taught on Jonah and 1 John and here in Galatians, Bryce spent an entire week doing an introductory lesson. And when we do our ladies' Bible studies, we do the same thing. We have an introduction on whatever book of the Bible that we're studying. Those introductory lessons, they set us up to be able to really understand from the book of the Bible that we're studying. And so when you study a new book of the Bible, your process shouldn't look much different. If you think about in Galatians, Bryce is consistently reminding us week after week about who the Galatians were. He's reminding us of the influence of the Judaizers before he relates the text to us. Bryce is teaching us exegesis. He is teaching us to hear what God's word says with the ears of the original hearers first. So just like any good archaeologist that sets to dig at a historical site, you need to be willing to stretch your intellectual muscles to dig for the hidden treasures inside. Otherwise, you're going to be tempted to read the Bible with no regard for the original message and just tailor it to your own end. So exegesis, it happens when we ask good questions. And that's going to make you feel like you're back in high school English class. But here is the encouragement to you. You do not have to, pra- you do not have to attend seminary to be able to pra- practice exegesis you were probably given a lot of those tools that you need as a high school student. So if Bible study feels very intimidating to you, call on some of the things that you've already learned about the study of literature. Asking good questions, it just helps you to pull a clearer picture together. And so the first question you want to ask is, who wrote it? Who wrote it? What do you know about the author or their background? Now, you would not read a book or a magazine article, a blog, or listen to a podcast without first knowing something about the author and their credibility. And with the Bible, we know God chose a particular author to write a text with authority through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But we still need to give attention to that human element of biblical authorship, remembering God chose a specific person to write that specific text. So what we're asking is how does that choice of author influence the way that we interpret it? 
And I think the Gospels are a really great example of this because the Gospels are pretty similar, but they have different authors. Does it change the way that you read the book of John to know that John spent time with Jesus, that he was an eyewitness to the things that he writes about, that John thought of himself as the disciple that Jesus loved? Does it change how you read Matthew to know that Matthew's background was a tax collector and he was a very educated Jew? Matthew and John, they were disciples. But then how does the book of Luke fit it? Luke wasn't one of those 12 original disciples in Jesus' inner circle. He was a physician. So how is his book different? Understanding who authored the book is going to help you understand the perspective of the writing. And then we're going to ask, when was it written? We use the dating of a book to help us understand how a book would have been read by the original audience and how it speaks uniquely to their moment in history. So it's helpful to know when a book was written to understand which other books of the Bible are contemporaries or where it fits into that big storyline of the Bible. It helps us to read the book of Ruth knowing that it was set during the period of the judges when the Bible tells us everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes. It helps us to read the Old Testament with the perspective of knowing all of Israel, they were awaiting a Messiah. They were looking for Jesus to come versus reading the New Testament where Jesus was alive and living or they had the perspective of living after the cross. Dating a book is also going to help you to understand some of the social structures or the law codes or gender roles, ideologies, political forces, or just the general issues that surrounded the audience that it was intended for. And then we're going to ask, to whom was it written? Every single book of the Bible was written to a specific audience that lived in the past. They lived in times and cultures that were very different than our own. And so it's helpful for us to keep in mind that a biblical text cannot mean to us what it never could have meant to its authors to, or its readers. I'm going to say that again because that's a mouthful. A biblical text cannot mean to us or to me what it never could have meant to its author or its readers. We've said every week the Bible is a book about God, but it is a book about God that is written to people who lived in the past and also to us. And that's why it's so important for us to understand the audience. Not all of the promises that were made in the Old Testament to ethnic Israel apply to us who live in the church age. And one of the most misused verses in the Bible is Jeremiah 29, 11. That's the verse that says, For I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a future and a hope. Go to Hobby Lobby. It's probably on, <laughs> I mean, it's everywhere, right? And from that passage, we can glean right and true things about God. We can learn about God's character, and we can learn about his ways from that verse. But if I start with the wrong perspective, if I don't think about the prophet who wrote that book, if I neglect the audience, which was the nation of Israel, 
I can make this verse about me, about the plans that God has for me, as if it's spoken to me. And I am embarrassed to say I am almost positive that I had this on my wedding programs um, 20 years ago. But this verse, it is not a promise. It is not a promise, first and foremost, to me. Now, it does mirror Romans 8, 28, and 29, which tells me God is working out his good plans in my life to make me like Jesus. And ultimately, that is a promise of assurance for a hopeful future. But Jeremiah 29, 11, it was spoken to the nation of Israel when they were in captivity. And God, the faithful God, who had made specific promises to the nation of Israel through Abraham, God was promising them that he would return them to their homeland. God was promising he would be faithful to the promises he had made. They'd been carried into Babylon, into exile, but God was promising through his spokesperson he was going to bring them back, back to their homeland, out of captivity. His promise to them as a chosen people, it had not been abandoned. And the hope for the nation of Israel is that one day God ultimately would fulfill another promise to send a Messiah to redeem them. So before we ask, what does this text say to me? We have to ask what it said to the original audience to whom it was written. And then we're going to ask, in what style was it written? And there are several different kinds of genres and writing styles that are used in the Bible. Our ability to accurately interpret a text depends on how well we understand the nuances of each of these genres. So for instance, historical narrative texts give a factual retelling of events. Um, narratives are usually fairly easy to understand and to read. The flood should be read as history. And this fall, our ladies' Bible study is going to be studying the book of Genesis. And one of the things that you'll notice in our study in the fall is that we're going to be taking on much larger passages of Scripture than we did when we studied a letter like Ephesians or Colossians that's centered on doctrine and duty. In the Gospels, Jesus used parables to teach lessons or illustrate a point. There are poetry portions of scripture, like the Psalms, that use language symbolically and metaphorically to paint word pictures. Wisdom literature, like Proverbs, it uses language to communicate principles that are generally true, yet not universally true. So we can't read the Proverbs as promises. Prophecy texts in scripture, like poetry, also use language in symbolic ways, and they are set in a specific and historical and cultural context. So we need to understand what type of writing it is in order to have the right perspective. And then finally, we're gonna ask, why was it written? Every single writer writes with a specific purpose in mind, and authors of the Bible are no exception. They write to record history, to instruct, to admonish, to inspire, to rebuke, to warn, to encourage. They write to address the needs or the hopes or the fears of their audience in light of the character of God. So knowing the purpose for which a text is written, it guards us from reading it solely for our own purposes. Think about how often in a sermon, Bryce tells us, he reminds us Paul's purpose in writing to the Galatians. That helps us, it sets us up to understand and then apply it. 
but don't worry. When you practice exegesis, you are not expected to know this on your own. The Holy Spirit is not going to reveal it to you. You will need help to answer those five questions. And a good place to start is at the front of your study Bible at the beginning of the book. I just brought this for an example. Um, my regular Bible that I use every day in my quiet time does not have any kind of introduction. But every single book of the Bible has just an introduction. If you're doing the First Peter study along with us, I just scanned that in and put that in. It's just a sample. Um, you'll find a discussion um, of those questions. So you want to read the introductory material before you begin to read any book of the Bible and then write out the answers that you find to each question. And by writing out those answers yourself, you'll be better equipped to remember what you learned from the introductory material. And that's an extra step, but it's a step that is worth the extra effort. And you may, depending on your time, um, consult more than one resource since different scholars are going to answer those questions in different ways. So taking the time to think about and dig for the original cultural and historical framework of a text, the genre, the purpose, um, the audience, and the author, that is going to help you. It's going to equip you to build your Bible literacy. And then it's going to set you up to actually begin the study of God's Word on any particular text. Um, in your notes, I think I have a few different kind of tools. The wonderful thing for us is that we live in a day and a time where you don't even have to have books in your home that you can look up to do this. There's so many things online. John MacArthur's website, I think he's got resources that's like an introduction on every single book of the Bible. One of my favorite resources is um, Warren Wearsby. I think Warren Wearsby is just really simple. Um, to understand. He's easy to read. Um, and he has, so this is a John MacArthur commentary on the whole Bible. Um, and so he's got notes on here, but this book has an intro. Warren Wearsby has one that looks like this on the Old Testament and on the New Testament. And that would be my recommendation if you're going to invest in anything, because it gives an introduction, but then even his commentary to help you understand, which is something we're going to talk about in future weeks. Um, it's simple. It's simple. Um, and I just, I only have that digitally, so I couldn't bring that to show you. Um, anybody have any questions? That was a lot of information. Any questions before we go? Okay. Um, can I just see, because our next couple of weeks, this is week number three, we've got three more weeks of class. Who is actually doing this along with us? Who is doing this during the week to... I mean, are you doing, because if, if we give time in here to work on some of this, I don't want to give time if no one's doing it. I want to plan our time so that it's the best investment. So next week, there might be opportunities like that where we, we do some group work or we do some things together, okay, as we, as we work through um, that. We will go through um, next week on your study guide um, or your projects for growth. It asks you to read the introduction on 1 Peter and, and write out those questions. So I will go through those. So if you don't leave me standing up here by myself, if you've got time during the week to kind of do that.